0: Hi there, this is Brent.
1: And this is Amanda.
0: We are the Unreliable Narrators.
1: Here to talk about the strangeness, the mystery, and the wonder of Gene Wolfe's prose.
0: What is time? What is memory? What is a person?
1: Is this reality? Where are we? Do we exist?
0: Have you ever considered that all your choices are what brought you right here to this very moment?
1: Episode number two. West Wind. Published originally in Worlds of If, 1973, republished in Stories from an Old Hotel, and then collected in The Best of Gene Wolfe.
0: This is a short story about a disfigured young man walking through a storm and stopping at a hotel before the big game. The leader has just got done with an address to his people, calling out West Wind as his favorite. He meets a young blind woman, who is getting away from some shady men at the bus station. They both get rooms and get ready for bed. At the end, we see the young man call the leader and identify himself as Westwin. Then the blind girl, she calls and identifies herself as Westwin. Then the innkeeper also calls, and she is also
1: Westwyn. And that's where the story ends. Well, um, I identified a couple of themes that I wanted to talk about. I don't think this is anything like an exhaustive list of the themes available to talk about in the story. Okay. But um, I I was struck by um, the mood of the story, which seemed both bleak and beautifully hopeful at the same time. And that tension, I think, is very interesting. I also think that, Um, there's a theme of universal uniqueness or universal specificity in the story. Um, Mm. suffering is a major theme. And, um, I think this might be a, a secondary theme, but I also think it's important to talk about the, the tension between the good and evil in an individual person, not to mention in a society that, that mix of good and evil exists in individuals and not in opposed persons. So
0: yeah. those
1: were the things that leapt out at me to okay. begin with. Um, I did want to call back, though, to last episode before we really got started talking about Westwind. <laughs> although I think this is probably the best way to start talking about Westwind. Um, because I asked about the, the wordplay in Dumpster World. Um, if the playfulness, the unseriousness um, was in the service of something greater. Yes. Um, but then when I started reading Westwind, I felt like that I was asking the wrong question. Um, which is unsurprising.
0: (laughs) You asked the wrong question, but I had an answer and now I'm worried about my answer. So why do you think it was the wrong question?
1: Well, I just think that it's the playfulness itself that is the greater thing. Um, when I, when I was reading this story, it felt to me like Wolf saying that the playfulness is the thing because the universe itself is playful Mm. Um and again I'm not sure that that theme is dominant in the story or this is just my reading of it or maybe just the pairing of the two in my mind because they came you know sequentially for me in this this reading um but that the the play of ideas is something that wolf thinks is actually the serious business of of a story
0: okay so
1: um yeah so the wolf wiki summary unlike yours <laughs> <laughs> uh calls the story a grim uh, the setting of the of the story, a grim future society. Um, mm. And so that pulls me back to the theme of suffering. And um, I want to know what your thoughts are on the the nature of grimness or the the characteristics of grimness that come through in the story, because again, I think that grim and playful or grim and hopeful are categories that Wolf might be challenging with this.
0: Well, off the top of my head, there's, I can see where they say it's grim. It, it does have a dystopian feel to it because um, the young man has a scar across one side of his face, and he—it appears that he cannot get a job. He—he he can't be employed because of it, and it's a little vague because it says he'll scare the other people, but we're not really given any further details other than the fact that it seems to—it's a large enough scar that it. The scar tissue doesn't uh, keep his face warm. It's kind of described as, I I think, bluish, whitish.
1: Yeah, and he can only smile with half of his face, so it seems to be pretty significantly disfiguring. Yeah. But there's no rationale for why that—no rationale offered in the story for why that would disqualify him from polite society.
0: Yeah, so there seems to be some sort of uh, shift in viewing people as people. Mm Mm-hmm. When asked about it, he, he says that he had a, uh, an accident and essentially he hadn't been on the job long enough, so workmen's comp wouldn't cover it. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of just shrugged off as, oh, yeah, well, that's the way it is. Like, it's, it, it's accepted. Mm-hmm. There's like a storm that's coming through.
1: That seems to be significant enough to disable um, infrastructure.
0: Yeah, so there's part of the future aspect where the like the buses and tra- the transportations running on electricity because they mm-hmm. say that the storm has shorted them out, and they're like the streets are kind of flooded, so they're walking through, and everybody that's coming in they're very damp. Mm-hmm. There's also a kind of a I don't know what you'd want to call it, but there's an aspect of the society where it appears that normal-looking people, can, like, they can discriminate freely. Because mm-hmm. uh, the lady that owns the hotel, she's like, well, go complain to the police, and maybe they'll lock you up, and then you'll get a warm... Right.
1: She's like, basically, I, I don't have to rent a room to you. All I, All I have to do is tell you that I'm full.
0: Yeah. And then there also is... There's a big screen where right. the leader appears and gives addresses to the people. So that feels very, well, not that I've ever been to North Korea, but <laughs> it feels like what I'm right. told North Korea is like, where there's uh, paintings and screens of, of the North Korean leadership all mm-hmm. over the place. Right.
1: So. Sort of the omnipresence of Big Brother, little flavor of Orwell in that. Yeah. But also a little bit of Bradbury with the, the screen being an entire wall. Yes. Um. I, that that was a telling detail to me. And maybe it's just my aesthetic preference. But if anything told me that it was a dystopian society, it would be a screen the size of a wall. <laughs> yes, I, I agree
0: with you. That was... Yeah. Yeah. yeah cause is, is that, that's uh, Fahrenheit?
1: Yeah, Fahrenheit 451. Okay. Like, they have yeah. the, the walls that are solid screens
0: yeah and he's taking out like another mortgage just so he can put up another
1: right so they all four walls can be screens yeah yeah um some of the details that were tellingly dystopian to me were the um he asks for coffee and so she peels the top off Mm, and then a handle pops out and it starts to steam which Maybe to some people sounds like, oh, look, technological innovation. And to me sounds like, oh, great. Everything tastes flat and boring and manufactured.
0: Yeah, because we have no clue how long it's been in this little tin. It's right. Like just there.
1: Yeah. And, and in the future that I live in um at least so far um <laughs> uh, the the stale diner coffee that came in pouches and were put through you know the bun brewing machine and were very just consistently bad mm-hmm. i mean it's it's its own thing i still enjoy diner coffee but it it isn't great coffee has given way to a future where there are dozens of espresso shops in any town of any size and Mm -hmm. um they're distinguished by all kinds of subtleties of production and flavor and i can reasonably expect to get a decent cappuccino even in you know a fairly rural location
0: yeah so the Mm -hmm. uniformity yes and over manufacturing yeah
1: yeah and the sandwiches are you know slices of boiled ham (laughs) between bread and and so the innkeeper is making sandwiches just by grabbing a slice of ham and slapping bread on either side of it which is you know subway is depressing um you know the the subway sandwiches are pretty depressing but not that depressing
0: yeah well and that kind of is a throwback to um there's a joke in one of the marvel movies where captain america says yeah oh the food tastes better like most of our stuff was boiled Right. And that feels like a throwback to Wolf's childhood, where just because of either they canned food or they didn't know how long it had been on the store shelf, a lot of the stuff was just boiled to, you know, prevent bacteria and that type of stuff, or at least that was the theory. So,
1: yeah. And in a world with, you know, not universal refrigeration and, you know, different standards for, um, you know cleanliness that makes a lot of sense but it does definitely it does change the the flavor profile of your food quite a bit and, and, and not texture. for the better yeah
0: and texture too it all
1: <laughs> oh yeah um i'm i'm having flashbacks to mushy peas on mm-hmm. my dinner plate mm-hmm. <laughs> when i was a child
0: <laughs> yeah my grandma used to uh boil peas and milk
1: oh my that's um interesting
0: yeah that's what they did during the depression so
1: well, I guess you learn your lessons young although i I at least learned to you know cook my steak not well done so we can grow um yeah, so there are these these themes of um you know dystopian sort of grimness mm-hmm. but I would still hold that there's something very like there's something very joyful about this story and I'm not sure I can pin down what details gave me this sense, but with all of the overtones or all of the elements of a dystopian society, I still ended the reading with a, a, a joyful hopefulness um, when it's revealed that three, at least of well, the, the three speaking characters in mm-hmm. the story, all three of them identify as Westwind and I think I know what the element is, but um, tell me if this is if this resonates for you that the leader isn't asking them for intel in order to reward them or control them. He doesn't seem to indicate any kind of anything that he requires of them, mm-hmm. um, but that conversation with them seems to be the the leader's goal, or at least the 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 only motive identifiable. And then it's repeated several times that he loves West Wind and that mm-hmm. that invocation of love is incredibly powerful to me and seems, at least at least for my aesthetic enjoyment, overrides the, the dystopian elements of the story and leaves me feeling just peaceful and, and hopeful.
0: Yeah. No, I, I think you do have a good point there because there is no transactional stuff going on. Like, we're led to believe that Westwind is a spy, from the verbiage that's used, because Westwind is called his the leader's eyes. Right. But then, as we get further into the story, the way that they're using oh, their Westwind's his eyes is more like the verbiage of like the apple of my eye. It's right because it like sight is precious in the sense that as one of our characters knows in the story, like it limits what you can do. And so there's that comes from, I looked this up. So it comes from the King James, but it's not actually a Hebrew phrase. So, but it's uh, the apple of your eye, like your pupil. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you don't want that damaged. Right. And that seems to be more the sense that Westwyn is the leader's eyes. It's because they're precious. Mm Mm-hmm not because they're out there like tattletelling on people.
1: Which I think that point is underscored by the young woman's blindness because her blindness does not limit her from being Westwind. Yes. Um, she is able to communicate and information or she's able to offer observation mm-hmm. without having any sight. And I think that that's... That's an incredible. Um, I don't know. It's, it, it's a very well done thematic note or a very well done um, narrative note where you have the character who is impaired in the precise way that, that Westwind is supposedly not impaired by. And it doesn't seem to be a point of confusion for her as a character at all. There's no, no um, there doesn't seem to be any limitation in her ability to under, understand herself as Westwind, yeah. even though she's blind.
0: Yeah, no, that's true.
1: Which, and and the blindness, I think, connects as well to, um, or further to suffering, because each of our three characters are suffering in some way. The young lady's blind, the, the young man is scarred, and the innkeeper is lame. She's limping.
0: So a thought occurs to me, and this, this may not be a fruitful question, That's okay. but I'm going to ask it anyway. <laughs>
1: we'll edit it out if it's not. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs>
0: no, wonders of technology. <laughs> yes. So there, I was just thinking about what you were saying and where the young lady's blind. When she comes in, the young man notices that she's seeing nothing, and he uses that term parenthetically says it's the second definition but nothing is capitalized there do you think that that has any bearing on kind of what you unpacked there or
1: well now i'm not i don't know i hadn't thought about that although i reread that line several times because it's so striking in the second most terrible and truest sense at nothing um so yeah i don't i don't know okay I think it must connect, but...
0: I, I don't have the answer.
1: Okay. Well, what's the first and less true sense of looking at nothing? Is that just staring off into space?
0: I think so. Vacancy? Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of like a, a negation, more like you have sight, but you're staring off. You are looking at something, but it's like, oh, I'm not looking at anything.
1: So you have sight, but you aren't using it. Yeah. Right. And then she does not have sight and is using it. Yeah. Okay. I think that does connect, actually. Okay. Well, the, okay, okay, don't ask me to unpack this in a philosophically defensible sense. <laughs> but <laughs> that she has sight in a sense mm-hmm. and is using it to see something, which is, I mean, nothing, negation, evil. Um, you know, she's encountered evil that day. Mm-hmm. Um, and is fleeing it, and then, um, yeah, looking looking out at nothing. and he, he sees her looking at nothing, recognizes that that is what's happening. And the, the description of um, the young man seeing her not seeing is that it, it is about the way she stands and looks, not his empirical knowledge of her blindness. There's, there's something in her posture and her expression, yeah. that communicates her blindness to him. Mhm. So, so yeah, I'm not sure if we arrived anywhere with that, but
0: Neither am I. Oh
1: well. <laughs>
0: we'll leave it in though.
1: It's it's a wolf story. Yeah. <laughs> we can we cannot understand something. Um, okay, so suffering. Yeah. Um, you know, we have the the blind, the scarred, and the lame. Um, and so again, this is an element that should make the story feel dystopian. It's a it's an aspect of a dystopian kind of world where all of our characters are are maimed in some way and Mm -hmm. but I still feel like um I I, I'm gonna go down on if anybody's gonna argue with me which so far you're not (laughs) I will go down on the the this is a hopeful and beautiful story and I think that that characteristic being universal among the characters is part of it because I don't know about you but in the last, however many years of my life, I've encountered a lot of scarred, yeah. people with my scarred self, um, literal and figurative. We bear, you know, everything from the humorous little stories of childhood that left us with the, you know, scars on our knees, mm-hmm. um, or, in my case, on between my eyes, um, <laughs> to just the deep emotional wounds. Of, of living in this complicated, difficult world. Yeah. And so having, having these suffering characters, each carrying around this internal sense of significance and affection.
0: Yeah. Because it um, it's just thinking what you're saying there, because there's a twist with the uh, lame innkeeper, because at the beginning, there's a line that says, she looked around the room to see who was supporting her, and your assumption, based off the way that the story has been told up to that point, is that she's against the uh, disfigured young man,
1: right? That she's observing them to she's observing who's supporting her in order to find out who will help her throw him out if she needs to. That's that's what you think that's doing,
0: yeah. And then at the end, because she's the last speaking character and so she gets on the communicator and says, "Hey, this is Westwind. I saw you tonight and we kind of have a flip there because we're forced to reread that line, not she's seeing who's going to like support her to throw him out. It's more she's looking around to see who's like who's acting in a way that she doesn't necessarily approve of." Right. She seems to be some sort of a mother figure mm-hmm. for a lot of this riffraff. So it's, she's kind of looking for who needs moral guidance in a, in a way. So
1: Right. And given the tenor of the young man's conversation with the leader, I think it'd be pretty easy to extrapolate her conversation.
0: Mm-hmm. Because
1: he, uh, the young man, describes the, the two men that the blind girl talked about, the one that was groping her, Mm -hmm. and the one that helped her. And both she and the young man expressed that it could have been the same person, and her inability to see meant that she couldn't tell if it was. And so he says, I was going to ask you to reward the one and punish the other, but it occurred to me that they might be the same person. Yes. And so then that kind of conversation, or the way that he approaches that conversation, Um, what you said about who needs moral guidance, it makes me think she's not observing in order to catch somebody in order to get them in trouble. She's observing in order to understand better what she should do. And so you can imagine her conversation with the leader being something along the lines of Jack so-and-so and and old Bob were not paying attention or or they, they seem disgusted by the man with the scarred face. And so- this, this seems to be the difficulty they're facing or, or what they need. Yeah. Because she expresses a lot of pity for the... <laughs> she expresses pity for the men who pee in the staircase. <laughs>
0: yeah, where <sighs> she says like, you must be pretty low when breaking the rules and getting one up on an old lady is your definition of a win or
1: right something yeah.
0: to that verbiage. So. Yeah, so
1: there's so much empathy in that moment. You, mm-hmm. know, you could see her being angry and disgusted, but empathetic? pitying
0: yeah um so I, I think i'm building on your comment here but uh where you were talking about the the man or men at the bus station where they were probably the same and in a sense we, we kind of almost get a glimpse of that with the disfigured young man because there was a a question in my mind because sometimes you're I feel like it's easy for people to fall in the puzzle box mentality with the wolf story. Because then I was like, oh, is the disfigured young man, was he the guy at the bus station? Going back and reading, no, he's not. And that would make nothing make sense as far as any of the introductions go. But once I got thinking along that line, you have the man at the bus station who's groping and then saying he's going to protect the girl. Mm Mm-hmm. Then we get, with the disfigured young man, the, uh, I didn't bring this up when we were talking about the dystopia, but the, the walls are literally painted cardboard. Yes. And so he's speaking with the leader. Right. And then when he's done, one of the parts of the partition falls down and we're given, I'm not quite sure how, how we're supposed to read this because he, he can see in there and she's, um. It says she takes off her blouse.
1: Right. He watches her unbutton her blouse.
0: Yeah. And remove it. Yes. Now, blouse can mean (laughs) many things. Like it could be an outer like coat garment or it could be like, you know. Well,
1: I would think that at the very least, she's in nothing more than an undershirt. More likely, she's in an undergarment. Yeah. Simply wearing a bra or something like that. And so it's very voyeuristic moment.
0: Yes. Then he puts the partition back up. Yes. And
1: not quite as quickly as we would like him to do if we were, you know, invested in his moral development. But he does put it back up.
0: Yeah. And it's after that line, like, where he's saying, well, I think they were both the same guy. And then we kind of get a repeat of that in his own life. And he seems, like you said, he doesn't put it up immediately, but he does put it back up. Right. And he d- then he does seem to take a better road.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: Cuz then he just says, "Hey, are we still doing breakfast in the morning?"
1: Right. So. Well, and I think that 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 plays into the I, I said this at the beginning and is part it's part of what I was thinking about is that that duality, the mix of of good and evil in humanity. But it doesn't seem to be a sort of I mean, this isn't an Ursula K. Le Guin story. It doesn't seem to be a um, you know, each of us is an equal mix of good and evil. It seems yeah. very much more a, you know, shockingly enough, a, a Catholic imagination <laughs> of, um, you know, good being able to come out of evil and mm-hmm. good being able to be taught through the example of evil. So he yeah. he remembers the evil that the the men at the bus station did, and he and he, he's convicted by it, or or his his behavior is at least improved.
0: Yes. And that, I I think that's an implication that Wolf intended, because those two uh, things, him speaking with the leader, and then him putting the partition back up. I I mean, they're right there on the same page. Mm -hmm. So,
1: Yeah. So do we want to talk more about themes? Or do we want to get into some of the, um, did you have any research that you uh, that you did any Easter eggs you found that would illuminate aspects of the story?
0: Well, th- this has no bearing on the story, <laughs> okay. but it, it mentions when he sees her eyes, it was like poisoned blue milk. Yes. So <laughs> blue milk is skim milk. Yes. And I, I just, my uh, grandparents used to call skim milk blue milk and because it has a
1: bluish tinge to it.
0: Yeah. I. So I thought that that was funny that he called it poisoned because... Somebody apparently had to drink skim milk when he was a child and <laughs> was getting his jabs in after yes. that.
1: Well, I feel like it's time now to quote um, Ron Swanson, everyone's favorite philosopher, <laughs> that the only thing that I hate worse than lying is skim milk, which is water that's lying about being milk. Yes. And this seems thematically connected, to me at least. I think the Westwind um, moniker, the West Wind name, is interesting. I... I don't know. I don't tend to think that Wolf selects names in order to encode a a secret key or a secret meaning. This is, you know, calling back to the oh, is this a puzzle box kind of thing? But yeah. I tend to think of his names as being evocative and um and and rooted in mythology, though not necessarily carrying a coded meaning, carrying a mythical meaning. Yeah. And so, you know, Westwind is the Greek god Zephyr, a wind associated with autumn in some places. Hmm. Um, I did find a, a poem by Percy Bysshe Shelley that is about the west wind, which is quite beautiful and includes evocations of prophecy and, and all kinds of things that I think Wolf would have enjoyed if he read it. I don't know if he did or not. Okay, But the connection that mattered to me as a reader is that in um, C.S. Lewis's novel Till We Have Faces c.s lewis is this obscure english author i I don't
0: know no i barely found him in my research for our previous episodes oh wait
1: yes so you have name checked him once before Mm -hmm. so now we're two episodes in two two callbacks to lewis anyway um until we have faces west wind is the god that removes psyche from her chains when she's chained to the tree on the top of the mountain Hmm. um spoiler alert she lives. Um, and what? becomes no. a goddess. Um, but he's the wind that rescues her and delivers her to Cupid. Okay. And again, I, I have no idea if Wolf had that reference in mind. But it connected in my mind, because that's one of my favorite stories of all time. And because that sense of him as a god that, was, that is helpful, mm-hmm. as, as a helpful character, assisting in the great plans of, of Cupid. It it seemed to it seemed at least to connect thematically there.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. I had just assumed it was specifically biblical references, which is probably my my bad there. Because
1: why would it be bad? I think Wolf knows his Bible. I, I'm just guessing here.
0: Well, I'm I'm a i am i am I was nodding my head in agreement, which nobody that's listening would know when you said he doesn't necessarily pick names just to like oh this. Okay, so we say Adam, we say Eve. Those are obviously very evocative names in our culture. However, there's plenty of people that I've known that have been named Adam and Eve, and they are not, like, they're not the the original ones. Or here's another one, like, everybody... Names their kid Josiah because it's like, oh, he was the good king, and then invariably they have like a little punk for a child, and then that grows up and does stupid things, <laughs> and you're like, well, okay, not really following in your biblical namesake there, but
1: or see also all of Puritan names, and um, and then um, the modern instantiation of uh, virtue names, yeah. everyone's favorite,
0: yeah, yeah. So the uh. West Wind is, you know, it's like when the locusts are there and uh, the West Wind comes and moves them out to the sea. And there, there's other times where the West Wind is uh, referenced quite a bit in the Bible, but it's in a positive context where um, it's. Okay,
1: so West Wind moving the locusts out, I, I'm assuming this is, you know, taking them away, which would then stop their depredations. Mm-hmm. That. I don't know why you are apologizing for thinking of a biblical context because that seems much more strongly connected than my loose, little. Hey, I'm just thinking about till we have faces because I like that book and it, wasn't it West Wind? Yeah, I, I looked it up. <laughs> it was West Wind. That I mean, taking away the locust, the years the locust have eaten. That mm-hmm. that seems a much more obvious, um, and and obviously beneficial interpretation.
0: I was apologizing because. If I had said it was only biblical, I feel like I'd be reducing everything down. And I am, given the way that it seems like Wolf, Wolf's mind works in these stories, I'm sure that there's a whole spider web of connections here. that, Right. And some of them may be contradictory, some of them may be supplemental. So,
1: Right. Well, it's the, um, the Ransom reference you made. You made last episode where you talked about how the, the, in the context of the story, the character knows it's not his own voice speaking to him because he would not have made that connection. And he knows why he would not ma- have made that connection, because to him, it would have been a mere pun, and, and a pun in the sense that he knows the etymology of his own name comes from Ranulf's son, mm-hmm. not from the English word Ransom. Yeah. And then the voice speaks to him and says that, you know, essentially the whole universe was created in order to create this convergence of meaning. And so what, what Lewis seems to be asserting in that story is that these things that we identify as coincidences are not coincidences, but are part of the very fabric of the universe. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that what you said about the way Wolf's mind works, like his mind w- seems to work in that sense that no, the whole universe is a spider web. he's not he's not weaving a web. He's picking up some threads and show and plucking them to show you how everything's connected,
0: yeah. Um, makes sense
1: so a couple of. I think a couple of notes, I don't know if we're coming near the end or not, but a couple of notes I wanted to make sure that we talked about. Um, he says in, I think it's the introduction to stories from an old hotel, that he had had a CB radio back when everybody in America had a CB radio. <laughs> I think that's something of an exaggeration, but yes, and that his handle was West Wind. Oh,
0: okay. So there's a
1: biographical reason for yeah. choosing that name. But then... Why did he choose the handle West Wind? Yeah. Well, so there's also um, another pretty strong literary connection uh, with a story, which is uh, G.K. Chesterton's um, The Man Who Was Thursday.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: Where you have um, the, the, plot, roughly, is that you have a gang of revolutionaries who are attempting to revolt, and mm-hmm. all but one member of the gang of revolutionaries are spies.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, and they're all working for the anti-revolutionaries uh-huh. um, or for the leadership. And the, the story, in all of its convoluted absurdities, is you know, this, this idea of this convergence of realization that they're all spying and they're all, they're all trying to take down the revolutionary purpose as yeah. secret agents. I think I probably would have made that connection anyway, but Wolfe appended a note to West Wind in the collection The Best of Gene Wolfe, where he says that it was not until he prepared to write that note um, for The Best of Gene Wolfe that he realized that long before he had written the story Chesterton had written The Man Who Was Thursday. And that the head of the organization in The Man Who Was Thursday is God. And then he recommends um, that you go out and read The Man Who Was Thursday because it's a good book. And so while the story seems in some ways to be clearly um, literarily related to mm-hmm. The Man Who Was Thursday, it seems like Wolf was um, either ignorant of that influence if he had read The Man Who Was Thursday or hadn't read The Man Who Was Thursday before writing it. Hmm. Um, and in his stories from the old hotel introduction, he makes a comment about um, how God would communicate with us if he had advanced technology, yes. which seems to be the the at least a significant part of the creative impulse that, oh, we have these communicators. What if we could actually see God's face on them? Yeah.
0: Well, oh, okay. You're going to just drop that out there. I do have a oh, question sorry. around Should that. Oh, sorry. Should I not but... do that? <laughs> no, no, that was it. The incarnational aspect of the technology. And then I'm, uh, like, <laughs> I'm like, whoa, so many questions just sprung to my mind from that. But I did have a question for you along that where, uh oh, well, m- maybe there's no good answer, but part of what I was thinking about when I was reading this is what does this tell us about technology? Because there's the communicators, and we tend to probably because of the day and age we live in. Like we, all, we all own a smartphone. We all have some sort of uh, device that many people have multiple screens in their home Yes, from floor to ceiling. But uh, one thing, we, we tend to view books as antiquated. Like they're, it's like they've always been around. But when you actually look at the history of, of books and then if you take a step back and then like history of scrolls and then another step back the history of writing like these are right. fairly recent inventions like we, we don't yeah we don't view books as a technology however they are a very influential technology and ubiquitous in most of modern literate so now i'm starting to step back a little bit because everybody's on their smartphone anymore. But it, I mean, you can, books are not something that is, they're, they're not unknown to, to people. So I was kind of right. curious. But they're
1: not a given of the natural world any more than the communicator that Westwind carries is a given of the natural world.
0: Yeah. So I was, I was just curious what your thoughts are on, like, w- what is, what is the story saying about god and technology and maybe religious praxis on that
1: i don't know it makes me uncomfortable to think about uh, think along these lines because i am well i'm sitting here talking into a a moderately expensive microphone (laughs) um which is feeding into a more expensive computer (laughs) which is tied into an electrical grid and so it's not like i have any kind of moral purity here but i tend to be dismissive of resistant to frustrated by the encroachment of technology Mm -hmm. into social life and the ways that it's been optimized for distraction for dulling entertainment and while all of these things have you know useful functions that can be stimulating and helpful i tend to be skeptical of their benefits because of the significant downsides that they come with Mm -hmm. so that being said I think that your observation about the technological innovation of the book is is spot on. I'm not sure what Wolf is trying to say with this, and I'm not sure what I believe metaphysically um, the limits of technological adaptation to religious life are. But the the idea of a religious basis where God hands down ten rules mm-hmm. um, for living, which does kind of sound like a, a publishing um, enterprise that a millennial would <laughs> undertake um, or maybe a Gen Xer talking to millennials. Um, but you know, 10 simple rules um, here on uh, BuzzFeed yeah. on, on nope. a mountain.
0: <laughs> number four will shock you.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and number six will make your parents happy. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, then, you know, if you think about the, the stone tablets of the law, being a technological innovation, which I think are, are mythologically, mythically calling back to, uh, you know, the, the invention of writing mm-hmm. in Mesopotamia. Clay tablets and reed styluses and how do I make, you know, what looks like chicken tracks yeah. um, into, you know, countable and, and readable symbols. That is incredibly revolutionary, and we do so take it for granted that it, it's normal for a, a society to regard a piece of writing as the voice of their god. Yeah. Um, that, that, is, that is an ordinary aspect of religious life. And so, yeah, communicators and, and video feeds, and I don't think I have anything profound to say about it, but it does make me a little uncomfortable, maybe?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I think it is supposed to, in one sense.
1: Right. So, well, Wolf wouldn't be happy if I wasn't at least puzzling over the story for the next day.
0: Well, I yeah, I'll agree with that. <laughs> if if we're not running too long, I do have a another question on
1: Is this gonna put me on the spot again? It will. Okay.
0: This one you might be more comfortable okay. speaking on. <laughs> so I get from the story that uh well, I'm, now I'm attributing motive to an author. But the, it, sports are not spoken of too fondly in this story. They, there's a game on, but we don't. It, it's, it's a generic sports ball. Nobody knows what's going on. Um, none of our talking characters know what's going on. None of our intrusions from the, the noise that's happening in the inn, the hotel, um, we don't hear anything like, "Oh, they scored a a goal or got a point or there's a
1: tech- somebody was offsides or."
0: Yeah, there's no no rules right. from this game. It's just background noise, and there's there's even a joke about how the intensity that they're watching the pregame like clips and commentary is them practicing for how they're going to respond to the actual game, which I I paused and laughed out loud when I read that. Cause that's just, that's funny when you think about it. And, you know, it's just the other, other day I was in at a, I can't remember where I was, but I, I was getting, I think lunch and I looked up and there's a, there's a guy watching one game on the tv that's provided and then there's another game in the other screen in the other corner and he's kind of looking at that too but he's got his phone in front of him and he has a different i think he had soccer on his phone and he was watching that so he's just bouncing back and forth between these different uh games that are going on so
1: well i think um you you failed to consider one possibility oh which is that the the wall screen is showing an esports tournament, <laughs> oh. <laughs> and uh,
0: so what you're saying is that w- this is a StarCraft uh, tournament going on, and there's clicking and everything happening.
1: I'm assuming that StarCraft is a video game, but I don't actually know.
0: <laughs> you're revealing too much to the listeners.
1: I know. <laughs> um no, I so. I didn't mention this in the beginning when we were talking about dystopian elements because I was kind of afraid I'd get derailed into being um, unnecessarily humorous about how much <laughs> I think that sports are, televised sports are, in, in my opinion, a symbol of a dystopian society in, in a particular way. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I'll just interject here. I was a college athlete. I'm well aware of the supposed and potential and actual benefits of athleticism, but a society where it's normal for an enormous percentage of people to spend multiple three-hour blocks of time over the course of a weekend, Mm -hmm. um, or sometimes during the week, watching sports, which are plastered with advertisements, um, are productive of Literally billions of dollars mm-hmm. in in advertising, in ticket sales, in everything, it,
0: merchandise.
1: Yes, and that that is considered not just a n- normal or ordinary, but also a wholesome activity. Um, it it does it repeatedly boggles my mind, and so um, this that appearance of you know the loutish uh, guests of the inn. Mm-hmm. watching the sports and um and I like that wolf didn't illuminate what it was yeah and and the intensity with which people watch it you know I I don't know that that seemed characteristically dystopian to me and a commentary on the the kind the ways that a human life can degrade from um purpose and creativity into passivity
0: yeah in that sense, the, what you're talking about and kind of what I was thinking about when um, I was reading the story is there's a section um, where in, I think it's Confessions, um, St. Augustine's talking about his friend who decides to give up watching the blood sports of yes. the Colosseum. Then some of their other friends uh, trick him and bring him in there. And he, so he closes his eyes because he, he doesn't want to uh, get trapped Back into like the
1: spectacle yeah
0: the spectacle but then as he's sitting there with his eyes closed the crowd starts cheering and they're all yelling and he's he gets curious as to what's going on and he opens an eye and then he like he's hooked again and it gets him even worse than he he was uh got watching the blood sports the first time so now I'm I'm not suggesting that they're watching gladiatorial <laughs> games on the screen here,
1: but on the scale of possibility from esports, I I was thinking like an esports Tetris tournament or something like that. Um, that's a thing, right? <laughs> um,
0: I'm sure it is.
1: <laughs> Space Invaders. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know pinball. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what
0: what was the last video game you played?
1: <laughs> um. So honestly yes it was uh super mario brothers i was i think nine years old
0: okay so on the original nintendo yes okay (laughs) okay so this is why your esports joke is only going to make sense to people over 50 but anybody over 50 is not going to know what esports are (laughs) what is she talking about (laughs) Yeah, real intensive game, a centipede there that was going on.
1: Yeah, oh, no, 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 okay. I had an old Nokia phone, and I had Snake on it. Okay. So I played that
0: I'll count a little that. bit. Yeah, I'll count. Was that late 90s,
1: um, early Yeah, 2000s? late 90s, early 2000s.
0: Okay. I do have one last question before we wrap things up.
1: All right, give it to me.
0: Yeah, so it's about the first section of the story. When the young man's coming in and the uh, leader, he's on the screen and it talks about how he's in a garden and he's like on a bronze chair and then it turns to umber, but there's like also mist in the garden. And then the, uh, as it's, get, so it goes from a screen to a, uh, like a picture and then it's, what's it end with a uh, postage with stamp? With a postage stamp, yeah. Yeah. then a poster and last a postage stamp.
1: Mhm.
0: What do you make of that?
1: I don't know that I make anything of it. I just know that that initial description of the the leader's image on the screen, I th- he uses the phrase magic portal. Mhm. Um it it definitely destabilized me as I was starting to read. So there's there's a I don't know if it's just classic defamiliarization. let let's describe um, an image on a screen in a way that disrupts your expectations okay um the the transformation of the image seemed to me to be um i don't know if you ever watched tv on a really old tv but um mm-hmm. when you shut it down the image shrinks away yeah or it at least has that illusion and and i don't know anything about the technology of that the reason for that i just have an, an image in my mind of a my grandmother's old tv kind of Shutting down that way.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, no, that makes sense. That's, uh,
1: well, it also seemed to me to be describing like a changing of the image where, um, you know, that the leader's image goes through these transformations of ubiquity where, um, he appears on the screen sometimes, but his poster is up. Again, this is, this is hearkening to that kind of big brother George Orwell kind of imagery. Yeah. Um, the uh, North Korea, dear leaders. Um, portrait is everywhere and of course it's on the stamps and, mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. So it seemed to be an evocation of the ubiquity of the leader's image. Um, but I just got I, I got from that that physical description.
0: Okay. Yeah, I was wondering if where he was because he's in the garden and there's the mist around him, which or it could be the static as they're turning right. the image <laughs> off, but it, that's one of the in Genesis, it, God plants the garden and he, you know, he comes in the cool with the Mm -hmm. mist. I I didn't know if that was a deliberate.
1: That that aspect of it. Yes. I think seems to, to be very true to what I think Wolf was intending. The, the God walking in, in the garden, in the mist, in the, in the cool of the day. Mm -hmm. That, that's a very Genesis evocation. The imagery of him in the garden, the presence of a throne, that, that's very, I was going to say classically Christian, but not, not in the sense of classic. Like, <laughs> that is an old-fashioned, or that is a timeless kind of, of set of Christian imagery around God. Yeah. But I don't know if there's if there are layers to that, and and I'm sorry I fixated on the physical aspects of the shrinking image, but I'm not sure if that's what you were getting at.
0: No, I was I was just asking because I wasn't sure what if the it's like oh well, is there some platonic like <laughs> I'm right. thinking of like oh like yeah Plato hated the arts because they were just an imitation. It's like is this the joke? It goes from <laughs> like a live feed to a picture to a poster to a postage stamp, and I'm probably just overthinking it, but.
1: Well, I don't know if you're overthinking it or not, but that, I, that didn't occur to me. Although I thought, well, I could probably spend 45 minutes talking about the symbolic significance of a garden. It just wouldn't cover any <laughs> new territory, so it wouldn't be particularly interesting.
0: Yeah.
1: All right. So we'll call that a day. Yeah. The unreliable narrators are Amanda Patchen and Brent Tal. And as Gene Wolfe said, there is no magic. There is only knowledge, more or less hidden.